Thank you, Cindy, for that ministry and music. I imagine that most of you at some point in your life have played either the game Simon Says or Follow the Leader. Well, following a spiritual leader is no game. Who we model our Christianity after is extremely important. We were in a passage the last two, week, two weeks in which Paul encouraged the Philippians to follow the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. He said, Philippians 2.29, Therefore, receive him the Lord with all joy. Hold men like him in high regard, speaking about Epaphroditus in particular. Uh, hold such people in high regard. Paul also encouraged the Philippians to follow his own teaching and conduct. Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Philippians 4.9 The things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me do and the God of peace shall be with you. So the bookends are that Paul encourages the Philippians to model the example, the faith, the life of Epaphroditus and Timothy. The other bookend is to model the faith, the life, the practice of the Apostle Paul. In the middle is a warning. Follow these examples. Be sure not to follow this middle one. And the middle one is that of the Judaizers. Paul was very concerned about the example that the Philippians would follow. The reason is given to us in Philippians 3.18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul takes no joy in this message. But he says, I tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. There are a lot of spiritual leaders out there, a lot of religious leaders, who are actually enemies of the cross of Christ, in that their teaching is not consistent with the sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they become enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction. Now, we can see that pretty clearly in some cultic leaders that are easy to acknowledge. Remember, a, a number of years ago, there was Jim Jones. And uh, many people followed him to their destruction. They literally followed him to Guyana. And there died in a mass suicide as they drank the Kool-Aid together. Their end was destruction. But more than the physical destruction of their life, was the spiritual destruction for when they awoke in life, they found themselves to be in the judgment of God. They were condemned, banished from his presence. There is a physical destruction and there is a spiritual destruction. There are a lot of people today who are very religious, who aren't going to go to heaven. There are a lot of voices out there, 
A lot of people, even claiming to be Christians, leaders, whose people, if they follow their teaching, are going to end up lost. It is a fearful thing. So Paul tells them that the Judaizers are not people to be admired, not people to be followed, but people that they need to be on guard against. So we notice that Paul begins this passage by warning against the Judaizers who would seek to place confidence in their being circumcised. If you look with me at Philippians 3, starting at verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard to you. Verse 2, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. How important this is? Well, it's, it's, three, it's very important. For three times, Paul tells them to beware in the exact same verse. Verse 2, beware, beware, beware. The word that's translated beware literally means to see. And the thought is that the Philippians are to see these quote-unquote spiritual leaders to be what they really are. To see them in truth. Not to see them in the way in which they represent themselves, but the way that they actually are. And then these three epitaphs that are given, which are very derogatory in manner, see them, number one, as dogs, number two, as evil workers, and number three, as false circumcision, verse 2. So let's look at each one of those very quickly. Dogs was a derogatory term that the Jews employed against the Gentiles. The Jews would often refer to the Gentile people as dogs. Jesus, interestingly enough, in accommodating himself to his culture, even he himself referred to the Gentiles as dogs, on one occasion, because they would understand the connotation. In Matthew chapter 15, listen to these words. And behold, a Canaanite woman came. It's important, a Gentile woman. A Canaanite woman came out from that region, began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away, for she is shouting after us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. These are the words of Jesus as he's talking about this Canaanite woman. Now, he does that to bring them up short. And, and she says, well, you know, you even throw the crumbs to the dogs. And so he eventually heals her. It's a, it's a lesson as to how we're both the new people. But the point is, this is the way in which the Jews often thought of the Gentiles. They thought of them as dogs. Thus, in employing this term, he is saying that these Judaizers who view themselves as the epitome of Jewish people are really dogs. They're no better than the Gentiles. Don't regard them because of their Jewish background. They are no better than the Gentiles. Secondly, is this rebuke where he calls them uh, workers of evil. Verse 2. Workers of evil. Rather than being admired, rather than holding them in high regard, as they should Epaphroditus and Timothy for their work, they're to view these people as workers of evil. Evil, 
workers who do evil. Not necessarily that, that they're robbing banks or that they are murdering people or they're doing horrendous things. The evil that they are doing is the false teaching that is going to prohibit an individual from having a true saving relationship to God. So we read these words in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow, strong words. You make them twice as much the sons of hell as yourselves. You make it so much more likely that they're going to be lost. Your teaching is false. You are doing evil, not good, even though it's being done in the name of God. Rather than achieving spirituality, they're opponents to true spirituality. Rather than leading people to heaven, they're actually barring the way to heaven. We need to understand that a lot of people that name the name of Christ have a false gospel. And if people listen to them, they're going to be lost. That's the thrust of this passage. And uh, it's, it's rather frightening. These Judaizers are to be seen as those who practice a false circumcision, verse 2. False circumcision. The term false circumcision literally refers to mutilators of the flesh. Thus, what these Judaizers are espousing is not true circumcision at all. It's merely mutilating the flesh. They were just cutting the flesh to no avail. The practice is not the same as that of genuine, legitimate circumcision. Although it was done the same way. But the teaching that associated it was what made it just merely mutilation of the flesh. What they taught about circumcision was not what the scripture taught concerning circumcision. The circumcision, the way that they were teaching it, would not lead to salvation as did the circumcision in the Old Testament. Now, this may seem pretty foreign to us because we're Christians. Judaism doesn't have a big impact upon us. So we can simply say, well, the Judaizers, yeah, we understand all that. So what relevance does that have to us? Why well, submit to you that the relevance that it has for us is that the same thing that the Judaizers did with circumcision, many Christians are doing with baptism. Just as there were many people that thought that they had a right relationship with God because they were circumcised. There are a lot of people today that think they have a right relationship with God simply because they were baptized as a child. They think that they are saved because they were baptized as a child. Well, just as Paul describes that circumcision as a mutilation of the flesh... That, yeah, they were cut, but that's not circumcision. So, too, the people that are going to place their confidence in the fact that I was baptized, therefore I'm saved, are people that just got wet. That's not real baptism. That's just water being applied. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Such views are erroneous. However... Such erroneous views do not mitigate the right view of baptism any more than these false views of the Judaizers mitigated the proper use 
of circumcision. But we need to understand that in many circles, the gospel is corrupted, and we are encouraged to be aware, to be on guard, to see it for what it is. What is interesting is that there are no lists of names in this passage. He doesn't single them out. He doesn't say, now here's the example, and then here's this person over here, and here's that person over there, and, and then watch out for that group and name them. He did, there are no names here. And so I'm going to follow that practice. I'm not going to name names. I'm not talking about what spiritual leaders. Rather, I'm saying to you the same thing Paul said, is that you need to be alert. You need to be unaware. You need to understand. And if people are putting their faith in some kind of religious ritual as a basis of their salvation, they are lost. It is through personal faith in Jesus Christ is what this passage is about. And you can't replace that. It is personal faith in Jesus Christ. And without that personal faith in Jesus Christ, people are lost. Now you say to me, really? Yes, really. Because we need to follow Paul's example. And that example is not trusting in simply being religious. If anyone, if anyone had reason to be confident in their relationship to God based on their religiosity, it was Paul, verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. If anyone is going to be saved by being religious, it was Paul. If there was anybody that was going to be saved by a practice of religion, it would be Paul. Now, Paul gives his credentials of what was so amazing about the way that he practiced his religious beliefs and yet still was lost. First of all, not only was Paul circumcised, but he was circumcised the proper way. Verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day. Why does he point that out? Well, because the Bible says in the Old Testament you're supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. And there were a lot of people who were circumcised another day. Paul's saying, I did it right. You want to talk about being circumcised? I was circumcised. And I was circumcised on the right day. I met the requirement to the letter. Secondly, Paul was a member of the nation of Israel. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. I really was Jewish. I really am Jewish. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I can trace my ancestry. You talk about being Jewish. Yo, that's me. I'm Jewish. And not only that, he says, you want to be a real Jew? He said, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Which simply means that he was a Hebrew-speaking Jew. In Paul's day, the Jews were classified in two different ways. They were Hebrew Jews and they were Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews were Jews that could only speak Greek. After the Babylonian captivity and after people were taken back, after people went back to Israel and then they were conquered by Rome and all these different transitions they went through, one of the 
consequences were for the masses, most of them couldn't speak Hebrew any longer. They adopted their language. They became Greek-speaking Jews. And they were always looked as second-class citizens by the Hebrew-speaking Jews. We're the real Jews. We speak Hebrew. You, you're lesser Jews. You speak Greek. It's kind of like today, if we're going to talk about a real Dutchman. Who's a real Dutchman? The person that can speak Dutch. Everybody, well, they're Dutch, but they're not real Dutchmen. The real Dutchman can speak Dutch. Well, just as in most of our situations, people that are Pennsylvania Dutch can't speak Pennsylvania Dutch anymore. So too in Paul's day. Most people that were Jews couldn't speak Hebrew anymore. Paul says, I could. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, he practiced the most strict adherence to the word of God of all the religious sects. The most concerned about obeying the commandments of the Old Testament. So that he was faithful to all that he taught. So it was not just that he was a nationalistic Jew. He was a very religious Jew. And not only was he a religious Jew, but he was very zealous, committed as a Jew. Notice verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul was vehemently opposed to any other religious teaching. We live in a day and age that seems to value sincerity above everything else. You know, as long as somebody is sincere, it really doesn't matter what they believe. Just that they believe in something. And as long as they are sincere, well, certainly God must be pleased with that. Well, if you want to talk about sincerity, if you want to talk about authenticity, if you want to talk about someone that was sold out in their religious practice, it was Paul. And he says, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. I put people to death. They didn't believe the way I believed. That's how seriously I took my faith. That's how committed I was to my understanding of the Word of God. And not only that, he lived a very moral life. The end of verse 6. As to the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Blameless. He was a good man. He would not have lied. He would not have cheated. He would not have stolen. He tried to live a good and moral life. He was a good person. Now think about this for a moment. A very religious individual who practiced the rites of his religion, circumcised on the very eighth day. A true Jew traces lineage to, to uh, Benjamin. A real Jew, because he spoke Hebrew. Zealous in his religious faith. Could that kind of person be lost? Is it possible that that kind of person wouldn't have a saving relationship to God? Now think about it. Is it possible that a person who was baptized as an infant, who grew up in the church, who participated regularly 
and coming Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday school, that lived a good life, that was trying to be moral, that was excited about what they believed? Is it possible that such a person could be lost? Is it possible that someone who grew up in this church, who was carried here from infancy, that went through the nursery, through the Sunday school program, sings with the children's choir, now sings with the teen choir, now sings with the adult choir? Is it possible that that person could be lost? And the answer is yes. If they are trusting in their own goodness rather than in the righteousness which comes from God. If we think that we are good enough to go to heaven on our own merits, if we think we're good enough because of some religious ritual that we entered into, that we're good enough because of our heritage, because we are Christians, because I can trace it back. My dad was a Christian. My granddad was a Christian. My great-granddad was a Christian. They were not only Christians. They were all preachers. They weren't. But let's say that they were. You know, that they were dedicated. They were zealous. Because I come from a long line of Christians, does that mean that I'm saved? Because my mom and dad are sitting here, does that mean I'm saved? No. No. Because you're excited, does that mean you're saved? No. It's all about a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. And in particular, the basis of my being righteous. For notice, as we move on here, (coughs) Paul is an example of one who trusts in Christ's righteousness alone. Paul gives up in trusting in good works in order to trust in something of far greater value that is in having a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. Verse (coughs) 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. The things that Paul once cherished, the things that Paul once thought would bring him closer to God, now says, I view as lost. They are not valuable for that. They don't accomplish that end. In order to trust in Christ, he must give up trusting in his own righteousness, and he gladly did so. Second half of verse 8. And count them but rubbish. Uh, Excuse me, verse 9. And count them but rubbish in order that I may know Christ. He didn't view these things highly. He viewed these things as rubbish in comparison. In fact, it's even more graphic than that. If you've got a King James, it translates it, Dumb. That's a very little tra- literal translation. It's manure. He said, I don't look at these things fondly. He says, I don't cherish these things. He said, in God's sight, they're manure. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. It's like, not just that they're spotted, not just that they're dirty. It's they're filled with manure. They're, they're ugly things. Our righteousness stinks. Our righteousness pales in comparison. No matter how good you are, no matter how religious you are, no matter how moral you are, 
Apart from Jesus Christ, we are unacceptable. Without exception. The great danger is that people rely on their being religious and being saved. And it won't save. They allow these things to have a special place in their life that they shouldn't see. The result is that he has righteousness that comes not from keeping the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law, but rather the righteousness of Christ which is appropriated by faith. Verse 9. May be found in him not having righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Here's the key. Here's the key. The one is righteousness that is found in the individual. The one who thinks themselves righteous, thinks themselves good because of the way in which they live their life, because they tried to be good, because they try to be moral, because they try to do what's right, because they go to church, because they are involved in religious activity. They look at themselves and say, well, I must be okay. I must be acceptable. Well, they're not. They're not. The only way that a person is acceptable is by appropriating, receiving the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We are about to celebrate communion. If it were possible, if it were possible for a person to be saved in any other way, then trusting in Christ's death and resurrection, then Jesus died needlessly. That's the book of Galatians. He died needlessly. Then there was no reason for God the Father to send His Son. If you and I can be saved by some religious practice, by some religious activity, by being zealous, by being sincere, by being dedicated, by being good, then there was no reason for Jesus to die. But He did die. Because all of those things are not good enough. Aren't good enough. Paul says, don't be taken in. Don't be hoodwinked. Don't look at these people and admire them and put them on a pedestal. He says, see them for what they are. Dogs, evil workers, false circumcision. Understand. Understand that not all religious people Go to heaven. Understand that not every sincere person is going to be in the presence of God. Understand that not everyone who dedicates their life to helping their fellow human being is going to go to heaven. It's not about our righteousness. No matter how righteous we are, it's as filthy rise. It's filthy rise. We need to see the need of Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are righteous and you don't need to add any righteousness to that. It isn't believe Jesus Christ and be circumcised. It isn't believe Jesus Christ 
and be baptized. Now, we encourage people to be baptized after they are saved. And that's not something that we simply teach. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we baptize people, but we don't say that if you aren't baptized, you're lost. If you aren't baptized, you won't go to heaven. You will never hear that from this pulpit. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said to the thief who hung on the cross, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He didn't say, Wow, it's good that you believed in me. I wish you could have been baptized. Today you will be with me in paradise. Baptism is a good thing. In its proper use. It was never given as a means by which people are saved. If you came in these doors, and if someone would have said to you, How can you be sure that you're going to heaven? If your answer would have been, because I was baptized, I fear for you. The only answer is, how do you know that you're going to heaven? I've trusted in Jesus Christ, who died for my sins. And I'm trusting in his righteousness, not mine, to be in the presence of God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's not because I'm trying to do good. It's not because I'm hoping at the end of my life that there's going to be a a balance and I hope that the good I do far outweighs the evil that I do. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is trusting in Jesus Christ. I am saved because He died. He rose again. He paid the penalty of my sins. And I'm asking for my sins to be forgiven. I'm stopping in midsection. I'm actually stopping in mid-sentence. Verses 9, 10, and 11 is all one sentence. And I'm stopping here. We'll get to them in two weeks. But look at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained or already have become perfect. These Judaizers thought that they had arrived. These Judaizers thought that they were perfect. These Judaizers were saying to these other poor peons, Be like us and you'll make it. Paul said, I'm not perfect. I'm not sinless. That's the one common denominator that should exist among all of us as we take communion. There should be an acknowledgement we haven't arrived yet. We're not sinless. None of us are. When the scripture encourages us to examine ourselves... It is not so that we discover that we are sinless. It's to be reminded of the fact that we are sinful. And it's to be a time of rededication. It's to be a time of a reassessment. It's to be a time of, of reevaluating and saying, you know, God, 
really do need forgiveness. I really do need to be cleansed. If it weren't for the grace of God, through Jesus Christ dying on the cross, I'd be lost. There is never a time in our earthly existence that that won't be true. The only reason we ever, ever are saved is not because of our goodness. It's because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I get that through faith. By faith, trusting in Him. We're going to take communion. I hope that you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning and that you are believing that you're right with God, not based on your righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I simply would encourage you to trust in Him. Just very quietly, in the innermost recesses of your heart, just say to God, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I am unrighteous. I know I need forgiveness, no matter how religious you are, no matter how good you are. I know I need forgiveness. I know that it's only through Jesus Christ that I am saved. May you make that profession today. And if you do, you are saved. And you're invited to take communion. If you don't know or haven't made that confession, we ask that you refrain. Because there's nothing magical about taking communion. Taking communion doesn't save you. It's faith in Jesus Christ that saves you. Without that faith, taking communion is done. It's meaningless. It's filthy. It's unacceptable to God. It becomes a bad thing. But with faith in Jesus Christ, it becomes glorious. So I encourage you, place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and rejoice in the forgiveness of sins as you partake of communion. Brethren, if you would come forward at this time.